podcast is brought to you by Welcome all you QT faithful to your inaugural hymnal devotional where each month we will sit down and take an intense look at one of the majestic soundtracks from the Tarantino verse. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show my heterosexual life mate and co-host of the Cheeky Bastards podcast, Mr. Steve Smith. Together, we will be giving a thorough examination of the tracks that reside on the Reservoir Dogs soundtrack. Welcome back, Mr. Smith, and may Tarantino be with you always. Hello, Scott, and hello, everybody. You're back. I mean, officially, you know, the last episode, episode, you're almost back in July, but you're on two of the special anniversary editions, the most recent one, which, you know, maybe people have listened to and I thought would be the end of the show, but it ended up being a really good one. And now we're co-hosting our podcast, The Cheeky Bastards. So when you folks hear this, our fifth episode will have just dropped on January 10th, which was 10 days ago. How have you been? How's the new year? I mean, it's been a while since the fans of this show have technically got a chance to listen to you, I guess. I mean, because not everyone listens to the special anniversary episodes, so... They should, though. They fucking should. I agree. You were on the Reservoir Dogs in October, and you are on the most recent one of Django Unchained. They were all great. All my guests were fantastic. They were different than the regular episodes. But here we are. We're starting. You are the first guest... Of my show last year when we started it. And now you're going to kick off a new thing, the hymn devotional. And for my listeners, basically it's the Bible study, but we've turned it into us taking a look at the amazing soundtracks. I'm really putting myself into a corner for season three because I don't know. I'm hoping his show is out and I can somehow parlay that into episodes because I don't know what I'll do in season three after taking a look, a more de- a deeper look. I can't do it for a second season. You know, that feels like, as Tarantino says, he never, he never revisits himself. He always, you know, he yeah, does something you'll, different. You'll, so. figure, you'll figure something out. I'm yeah, sure. I've got a year. I said that a year ago. And now there you go. Yeah, here we exactly. are. Exactly. Exactly. No, we'll think we'll think of something. So what's good with you? What what have you been up to? What what do our my listeners not know about you outside of you being in the new show that we have? Well, I'm well currently on holiday from work till February, and I'm chipping away at two new episodes of my old podcast. Because I've got the month off. That just gives me time to, yeah. to sort of get them done. I just haven't had the chance after you know ever with a pretty crazy rough Christmas and my Blu-ray purchasing has died down because I'm a bit of a collector. I don't know if anyone knows that, but <laughs> a bit of a physical media collector. I've got to the point now where all the films I love, I kind of own now. So that gives me uh, something else to try and find to spend my money on, <laughs> you know, because all these boutique Blu-ray labels are doing some amazing releases, you know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's been taking up a lot of a, a, a sizable chunk of my um, income. But like I say, I pretty much brought everything now, so I need something to f- 
wanting to spend my money on. Well, there are new 4Ks out of, I believe, Inglorious Bastards, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, and True Romance. Just, you know, just the well, name got, drop a few. Right, so, so I've, got the, I've got the True Romance. I've got the Arrow 4K. I've got the Inglorious Bastards 4K. I was kind of hoping there would be a box set of all of them, and I'm sure that'll probably end up happening at some point. Yeah, 4Ks. That's a whole other subject, really, because yeah. do I replace everything that I brought on Blu-ray with 4K? I'm kind of sitting out at the moment. You know, something it, like a new movie. Yeah. You know, like say, say, obviously, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, when that came out, I grabbed the 4K. Yeah. I will say that the jump in quality is so, obviously Blu-ray or DVD from VHS was a was a marked a change in in quality for sure. A huge step. Up. I don't know that it was a giant step from. DVD to Blu-ray. Obviously, we got more expanded, and obviously in HD it looked better. But the jump from—I mean, just the jump into 4K is—it's so noticeable. You know, like yeah. I wish I—I I wish I could say like, ah, you don't need to spend your money. But man, it's—it gets—it makes me think about maybe I should get. You know, maybe not all my collection. No, no, no. But I That's think all of my go. all of my Tarantino ones are all at least the ones that I consider to be my favorite films of all time that I will revisit more than once. Yeah, I would say. From my experience, just to pick a, a current movie, if you, for some reason, someone had bought you Bullet Train on Blu-ray, I bet you there's literally zero difference. Yes, I know what you mean because I've just seen it in the. Um, yeah. yeah, yep, I get what you're saying. Whereas I think I so something something like The Godfather. Yeah, yes. I think like The Godfather 4K looks amazing compared to the Blu-ray. And I must say this: I don't know if we discussed this before, but um, True Romance. I always found yes. look pretty shitty on Blu-ray. <laughs> that for some reason that had always had a very muddy look to it, but the the four the the four K looks incredible. So yeah, I'm just kind of I'm sitting out four K at the moment. So I don't want to go through that whole process of replacing my Blu-rays with four K. That's just too expensive, man. You know. But anyway, <laughs> so know. yeah. I'm wor- I'm working on I'm working on some new podcasts, some new music shows, and I'm saving money because I bought all my favorite films at, at this point. So that's <laughs> what's going on with me. We went off on a bit of a tangent there. And now I've got to put back in host of the Way Past Go podcast. I dropped it because you said you were done. Now you're bringing it back, the son of a bitch. God damn it! All right. So the funny thing is, rip, is I've opened a... this show with it, and I'll end up closing because I rec- record the closing later, and I'll end up adding it. So people will be like, "Is this guy not the fuck he's doing?" Actually, no. The answer I don't is no. Know what I'm doing. Yes. That's I fine. don't know what I'm doing. I'm so up and down and I'm, I've got a very love-hate relationship with my podcast because I did it for so long. That is fair. You know, when I start listening to it again and I start watching all the B-movies again, I think, oh, I just want to do another another couple of shows because I, I always... You get the bug sometimes. See, I always used to have such... Yeah, yeah, I used to have such fun putting them together. Um, and that was a real kind of creative process where... You know, it'd take me a few weeks to put like an hour show together. and But at the end of it, you listen back and you think, that's a pretty cool little um soundtrack <laughs> all of us all of us of its own really so yeah so it's a bit of a love hate thing and i'm i got a couple in the process but anyway that's enough about me <laughs> yes cuz we are here we are here to talk about the very first soundtrack that ever graced the airwaves and ever graced the screen for a Tarantino film, Reservoir Dogs. And now it's time to reach under your pews and pull out your Church of Tarantino hymnal as we begin our devotional with the soundtrack from Reservoir Dogs. The Reservoir Dogs soundtrack was released on October 13, 1992 by MCA Records. It features 16 tracks from various artists and 
has a running time of 30 minutes and 50 seconds. American comedian Stephen Wright plays the voice of the KBLY DJ hosting a KBLY Super Sounds of the 70s weekend. It was certified platinum in Australia, New Zealand, and the UK, and certified gold in Canada and Spain. It has sold 863,000 copies here in the United States. Now to kick it off, we're going to go through this track by track. You will get some inside information of what I could find on these tracks to include things, how Tarantino helped move it along, if it got an extra boost once Tarantino put it in a soundtrack, and we're just going to discuss them, what we liked, what we don't like, a whole bunch of stuff. We're going to go into it now. We're going to start with our first track, which ends up being the title track of the film from George Baker's selection, Little Green Bag. Little Green Bag is a 1969 song written by Dutch musicians Jan Visser and George Baker. The track's original title was Little Green Bag, in reference to the color of the U.S. dollar. However, the single was given the erroneous title of Little Green Bag, which some took to be a bag of marijuana. The single peaked at number 9 on the Dutch Top 40 singles chart, was number 3 in Belgium, and reached number 16 here in the States. When the song was used on the soundtrack, it became an international cult classic. And in the same year, it reached number 1 in Japan and was used in a Japanese whiskey commercial. It is the opening title track of that cool-ass slow-mo walk up that we talked about in the Reservoir Dogs podcast many times. Did you know, originally, Tarantino wanted Pink Floyd's Money to be the opening song? But at one point, he heard Little Green Bag on the radio. He grew so nostalgic of it that now the rest is cinematic history as it is the title track for Reservoir Dogs. I am so happy that he heard that song. Not that I don't enjoy money from Pink Floyd or don't enjoy Pink Floyd. I just don't think it has the same effect that Little Green Bag does with the imagery that we get from it. Your take on that, Mr. Smith? I'm not a fan of Pink Floyd. That that just changes for me. That you know, obviously, it, if you were to, I wonder if you could do it. You could probably do the experiment yourself, where you played the credit sequence to Reservoir Dogs and just played. Pink Floyd over the top. I thought about doing that. I did yeah. think about doing that. I don't want to promise anything right now to my listeners, but maybe, maybe by the time this uh, episode drops, I will have that on the socials. Because it is hard to put them on the socials when they try to nab you for trying to use their music, yeah. whoever it is. Tricky, tricky. But yeah, that would just alter the vibe of the movie so much. That's quite a mellow track. That's quite a slow track. Well, it does have a bit of that bass. It's like boom, 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 boom. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, but and then it's got, got the ripping of the roll. money. There's kind of a roll to it. Yep. It's kind of a roll. And, whereas Little Green Bag is a very, very up yeah, like, track. Boom, I mean, boom, I, I'd boom, never boom, even... Boom, 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 I, I, I don't know about you, but I'd never heard that before, that song. No, I'd never no. heard Little Green Bag before. 100%. This, is, this was my introduction to that song. Yeah, I'm not going to be all kind. I'm not going to be all kind. <laughs> like, yeah, man. I'm, I'm just like Tarantino, man. We're just connected. You're not going to be Sean Wheeler? Yeah, oh, well, hey, hey. <laughs> I had um, this on vinyl back in the 30s. I was I was conceived to the song, so I remembered in womb. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm, not gonna, I'm not getting involved. I'd, I'd never heard that song before, and that just really sets the tone, I think, for the movie. It's still my favorite, I think, opening theme song for a Tarantino well, film. Well, I'm, tr- I'm trying not to jump you know? the gun here because I always no, do. I know, I know. I always I, do. No, it's, it's not a part of my question. It's, it's, where I, I know answer, what you're saying. Where I answer yeah. questions that you haven't I got answered you. I just, it just, I'm holding back. I love it. Like, every time I hear, like, we talked about that cool bass line. And I think a lot of it is also, I mean, obviously, the one of the great things of what Tarantino can do and what this these soundtracks that we're going to go through and we're going to hopefully help illustrate more is his ability to put them in and the imagery that goes with them, which is what makes them, in my opinion, so iconic and then brings them to the forefront. Absolutely. A little green bag from the George Baker selection would just be this song that is 
known by a few people that would eventually disappear because an era of radio was disappearing with it. But as the opening track, with the dogs walking, we know with all the members of the crew walking, and then as they get to the cars and the road, the title comes up, and everyone, you're just like, oh, that's so fucking cool. It is just a really amazing fucking song, and just really. You didn't yeah. know it at the time, but man, it was the introduction of like, this guy has, he's playing on, on all facets, you know? Some directors are amazing with directing, and then they leave, the, let their music supervise and other people figure out the songs. Yeah. I believe like Scorsese and Tarantino are those few directors, and now, oh, Guy Ritchie's also Ritchie. good. Edgar Wright. Yeah. Those guys have, they have their, you know, whether it's uh, because of Tarantino, you know, because obviously they both came out later, a couple years after him, whether he helped it, but, or they're also fans of Scorsese, those four directors have have an ear for music and always yeah. seem to have great placements. Guy Ritchie's someone who I've never heard him. I don't think I've ever really, I'm not his biggest fan anyway, to be fair, but I don't think I've ever really heard him talk about Tarantino, but I know he's a real, um, he fancies himself as a sort of bit of a musicologist. He loves his music. And you can definitely tell from his films, because I, I know he he's quite heavily involved with the song choices for his films. Whereas Edgar Wright is kind of 100% yes. uh, involved. I'm not sure how much Guy Ritchie's involved, but I know he, he fancies himself as a bit of a DJ. I've heard of him <laughs> before. You know. But anyway, yeah, so that opening credit sequence of Reservoir Dogs, you know, I remember to this day, you know, all them years ago, when that just kicked in in the, in the cinema, and that was just like, after, because you, you've you already had the... Um, yeah, the, the Madonna's the big do, dick speech. Amazing, and, yeah, the whole know, so opening, you're kind yeah. of... You you you're you're following up a kind of jaw dropping scene with a jaw dropper of a credit sequence, and this yeah. is your first and and this is your first film. Well, the beauty of it is, is we get these this cool dialogue that we're not used to. We get this cool opening track that we're not. I mean, we we've heard stuff of like you're like, oh wow, this is gonna be a cool movie, and then he like does a one eighty on us, and all of a sudden there's a man screaming, bleeding out in the back of a car, and you're like. <laughs> like all of a sudden yeah, so the brakes next. the brakes have yeah, been put on and you're like yeah, yeah, holy no, shit you're, yeah you're absolutely right so so you get the so you get this jaw dropper of an opening scene a jaw dropper of a credit switch sequence and then you're fucking dragged <laughs> yes kicking and screaming is something you're not ready for yeah the most horrific you know there's no yeah. build up no. there's no build up to that you're just having your face you know mushed yeah. into a drag through the dirt almost <laughs> yeah. like holy fuck yeah, and it's it doesn't let like, up. It's it like you're really no. It's like you're a young kid and they're like, oh, would you like candy? And then all of a sudden you get in the van. And you're like, oh fuck, why do I don't want to get yeah, in the van? Exactly. <laughs> That's kind of like um, like I said to you. Um, you know, the pace of the film, you know, is relentless in that sense. You know, you just go from classic scene to classic scene, and then it's fucking over. And the music is a big part of that as well. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, you yeah, you got the amazing <laughs> Dinah sequence, the amazing theme song. And then this amazing, you know, back of a car, screaming and kicking, blood everywhere. It's just so vicinal and sort of in your face. It's just, that's yeah. why I love it. You know, I mean, you know how much I love Reservoir Dogs. It's the song. Little Green Bag is yeah, the song Little that Green kicks Bag. it off. It's just like, yeah, it's just like slap bang in there. Crazy. You've never seen anything like that before. Track two, Blue Suede's Hooked on a Feeling. In 1974, Swedish pop rock group Blue Swede covered this B.J. Thomas pop song from 1968. However, their version included the Ooga Chaka from Jonathan King's 1971 cover. Blue Swede's version also tweaked the lyrics to avoid a drug reference. That same year, this song reached number one in the States and has also been featured on the American TV series Alec McBeal and in the 2014 film Guardians of the Galaxy. Ooga Chaka, 
Ooga Chaka. Now, for those of you who don't know when this plays, this song plays when Mr. Orange is getting into the car with Pink, White, and Nice Guy Eddie on the way to the meeting to plan the caper, and we are riding in the car with the cops who are trailing them, but we don't see the cops. We just hear them talking, hey, would you like a donut? Yeah, give me the bear claw. You know, that, that little yeah, yeah. moment. And the song then plays underneath the great scene of them talking, but whenever I hear it, like, it's another great moment, and it just fucking works. It's like, and we'll talk about when I get to the Pulp Fiction one in a couple months, but it's kind of like um, Jungle Boogie. Like, it's just one of those hip 70s soul funk tracks that kicks in and you're just, it's a perfect groove, you know? No, I know. I will, I'm just going to say this quickly because that saves me saying it every time. I've never heard any of the songs on the soundtrack. I only heard one and we'll get to it. It's on track yeah. th- four, but it's well, okay. by a different but person. Yeah, so, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've never heard any of the songs before. As soon as I heard the Uga Chaka, Uga Chaka, I was like, I don't know what the fuck this song is, but I now know I love it. <laughs> you know, I was it's like, just, I'm, I'm yeah, in. it's just like bubble gum R and B grooviness. Just that, oh, like I said, yeah. And not to sound like an old fart, but it's music that's not made like that anymore. They're just not that catchy. And not even in our time then. No. Like, you know what I mean? No, not in the 90s. No. Yeah, Mm -mm. yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think, because that's all like um, source music, yeah, it's all like needle drop stuff. But I always think the idea of needle drop stuff previous to Reservoir Dogs was familiarity. Yes. So you'd hear Blue Blue Suede Shoes or Louie Louie or Great Balls of Fire or I don't know. Even more current stuff. Well, even in the 80s, you would have famous artists being paid to make a theme song. Like, you know, Kenny Loggins was huge wow. in the 80s for doing this, you know. Absolutely. And, you know, the Highway to the Danger Zone. Like, you'd have people actually making the song for the soundtrack. And Tarantino yeah. kind of took that bit of an aspect and then was like, but I'm going to pick my favorite songs. Like, what would I want yeah, yeah. in my soundtrack? And this starts Yeah, it. so you, so you in, instead of getting the f- familiar source music to give a movie a sense of time and place, like you would in, like, American Graffiti... Mm-hmm. And so on. You get this guy picking obscure music, but pop music. Yes. So he's yes. not trying to like intellectualize it. No. He's trying to groove you. You know, he's like he wants mm-hmm. you in the mood for this. Well, much like his film inferences, like you know, the influences yeah, exactly. and references does in his films. Exactly. He does them that you don't know. You're like, you yeah. know, and then you get some people like, oh, I know. No, you know now because he's yeah. told you what his references are, Absolutely, and so you go back and you yeah. go, oh my god, this is obscure. Now you now it's mainstream. Yeah. He's taken obscure things that he loved as a kid and remembered, and now put them in, and now it's become mainstream, and now everyone knows it because again, this song they were smart not to use it for almost thirty years, but it ends up showing up in the movie Guardians of the Galaxy. Another director, James Gunn, who also oh, right. is, is good with putting you know, yeah, music with yeah. his movies. Absolutely. Absolutely is. Track three was one, like you said, I never heard, I've never even heard of this artist, but Joe Tex, I Gotcha. This song was originally intended for King Floyd, but Tex decided to record it for himself in the late 1960s, but it wasn't released until 1972. The song peaked at number one on the U.S. R&B chart and number two on the U.S. pop chart, while the single will go on to sell nearly three million copies. This song plays when Eddie is driving around to the warehouse and Blonde, White, and Pink start to beat the cop. It's another catchy fucking song. Yeah, I knew, I know Joe Tex, but I didn't, again, didn't know this song. It's another one of those, like, hidden gems that just suddenly come out of fucking left field. Never would have heard this song. You know, here's the funny thing. The only time I hear this song is if I'm playing the soundtrack or it's on my playlist or I'm watching the movie. I've, you know, yeah, I have yeah. Sirius XM and I'm again not like, hmm, hmm, but I prefer that. I don't like listening to local radio because it's just all garbage now. It's not like it used to be. Yeah. But even on some of the, you know, the older stations, they, they, the deep track stations, this song rarely, if ever, 
I've never heard. I only hear it if I play it or I see it in the movie. It's just one of those songs that I'm surprised it didn't catch anymore because it is a great track. It is a fantastic Absolutely. track. And again, we, I've talked about it on my other on some of my other episodes, but like he he found the placement of it perfectly. Like it really fits in in the moment of the film. I gotcha. It's not just as you know, it's hard enough to find a decent song that people haven't heard before to put in a film. Mm-hmm. That's where you put it as well. Yes. Oh God, placement is yes is key. Uh, 100%. It's key. It's equal, almost equally as important, I would say. And well. He is the master. Beyond master. And as fans, hopefully people start to listen to these episodes more because the Bible study people, you know, they listened to him but didn't go at him as much as I thought they would. But I think that if you're a lover of Tarantino, you have to also love his soundtrack, his music. Like it, they just go hand in hand. It's, it's hard to not do one without the other. And a song like I Gotcha, placed in the moment it's placed, really, really fucking works. Really fucking works because of also the context of what's happening within the scene where Eddie's trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And meanwhile, we've got the other three guys back at the warehouse beating the crap out of the cop. And it's literally talking about I've gotcha. And, and but the other the other object thing is, is it's also a little bit reverse because even though the cops beat him up, they're already caught. Like they've already got cops waiting. Like it's like yeah, it's such it's such a yeah, it's such like an inference they don't even understand yeah. that's happening. So yeah. <laughs> Now, the fourth track is the only song I did know, but surprisingly, it is not by the original artist. It is Magic Carpet Ride by Bedlam, not by Steppenwolf. And I'm assuming they were able to be cheaper to pay for the remake rights than it was to pay for the actual song rights, which is the only reason I can think of at the time of this recording why they chose it. Not much is known about this rock group from Nashville, Tennessee. They released their only full-length album called Into the Coals in 1992, an EP in 1991, and the two songs from the soundtrack. In the mid-90s, the band changed its name to Iodine and released two more albums by the late 90s. Sadly, bassist Chris Feinstein died in 2009 from an adverse reaction to over-the-counter cough medicine. Now, it plays at the bar where Orange is telling his goddamn commode story. So, yeah, well, that's son of a bitch. He wasn't Quentin Tarantino yet, was he? So he didn't have the, no, he didn't didn't. Have the budget. But um, I knew the Magic Carpet Rise song um, because I used to have an album by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. And it's not. You that did say never, that when we talked about this. Yeah, yeah, that's not a great album, and and this, and they sample it on one of the songs, and I think the song is called Magic Carpet Ride. So you can YouTube <laughs> that if you like, but that's not a good song either, you know. But it was just sort of one of them things where I'm watching Reservoir Dogs on the, the cinema, and I'm like, wait a minute, I know that song. And I did. Yeah, that's. I didn't know. You know, I didn't know the like you say the Steppenwolf version. I knew the Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five version. Um, yeah, <laughs> like I said, probably worth checking out if you're curious on YouTube. But I'm not sure that'll go in any um, playlists. On, I won't go in. I won't go in any playlists on Spotify. I don't think. No, um, but this is not, not my favorite my song. But me neither. I think it's properly placed in the scene because they're at a bar they're drinking it's the early 90s or whenever this is taking place it would be very likely that maybe that song is being played in the kind of bar they may find themselves in so it makes sense to the story where that song will be placed as as opposed to yeah, I think, like um, I got you wouldn't have wouldn't have worked there you yeah, know it's, think, it's too upbeat a song they needed something that people knew but could also be a kind of background noise so like okay we know they're in a bar but it, you know it wouldn't pull out like hooked on a feeling would have pulled you completely out of it yeah and also it's probably in the right place because it's not a good enough song like if that was a fucking masterpiece of a track it would be lost in that scene <laughs> yes yes Do you know yes, what i mean yes. i mean i'm sure some people love it 
but to him yeah, it was probably yeah. a, it was probably a little bit of a weaker track that he could just have in the background and it didn't cost him too much money yes he had someone else re-record it and but it was Whereas also at the time a, shit, a familiar yeah, song yeah. yeah yeah if he'd have paid a shitload of cash for the steppenwolf version it would have been for, it would have been in the forefront of the scene yeah he yes. would have put whatever scene he would have put it in but yeah yeah i just think it was probably a cheaper version of an okay track that he could just have so there was no sort of dead air in the background Yes. But yeah, yeah, not a fight, not a fight. Yeah, you can't be at a bar and there'd just be nothing going on. Hey, if I heard that if I heard that in a bar now, yeah. I'm sure you'd well, love you it know as much what? as me. If you if you put in a rap song or something like that, or even a funk song, it would have taken away because it's it's too groovy, too much is going on. It feels like a dance atmosphere. If it's a country western, it kind of slows down the mood. But if it's a rock and roll song that's familiar to people, but it's you know, it's not it's not obnoxious. But it's like you said, it's not something you're like, fuck yeah, I love this song. Like, yeah. I probably just <laughs> pissed off like 20 listeners. You're like, that's my favorite. Yeah. I was married to that song. <laughs> fuck you. But, you yeah. know, so <laughs> you don't lose your mind over it. But, and you could also miss it if it's not there, which I think is part of the point. You're not supposed yes. to be paying attention to that song. Yeah, that, yeah, that's, you need to be paying attention to the rest of that point. story. Yeah. No, that's a really good point, actually. If you, were, if you were tapping your toes and thinking, I love this song, you're missing out on an integral yes. part of the fucking movie. Yes, because no, we talked about, we both forget that this story is bullshit and we're worried about him getting arrested yeah, by these cops. Yeah, 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 you need to, you need that. That's important. Yeah. Magic carpet ride is not important. <laughs> well, track five, we'll discuss if this is important or not, but Sandy Rogers, Fool for Love. Fool for Love was originally the title track for the soundtrack for the 1985 Robert Altman film of the same name. The film Fool for Love was adapted from Sam Shepard's play. Both the play and film star Sam Shepard, who had his sister, Sandy Rogers, write and perform the soundtrack for the film. Now this plays while Mr. Orange is preparing for the warehouse meeting. He's kind of in his upstairs apartment. He's getting his coat on. You know, He's getting all ready to go outside and meet them. And again, it's one of those songs that doesn't exactly resonate as like a classic. However, as I've thought about this preparing to talk to you about it, it may be a perfect song to show us how different from the people he's being with. When we're with the rest of the gang, it's all cool music, except obviously for the, the bar we just talked about. But so far, it's been cool, hip music that's just like moves the soundtrack along. And this kind of slows it down and shows us that he is not who he says he is to these people. He's got a country western, almost heartbreak song going on for him that he's listening to in his thing. Where if it's like Mr. Blonde getting ready, he's probably listening to like Elvis Presley or something. You know, we're expecting him to be something cool where here's Mr. Orange, the guy who's the cop, who's the rat who is not listening to what we would associate the rest of this crew probably listening to, especially with their conversation about K-Billy Super Sounds of the 70s that they've been listening to the whole weekend. He has not been listening to K-Billy Super Sounds of the 70s. He's into some kind of 70s or 80s sad, you know, blue uh, country yeah, no, music. So as I said in the, in the main podcast, nothing Tarantino does is accidental. And sometimes you can overlook it, and that's perfectly fine. But when you get a chance to sit down and do the things that we do on these portions of episodes, you get a chance to really dig down to the minutiae and realize, hmm, why is Fool for Love by Sandy Rogers playing when Mr. Orange is getting ready? Because he's silently trying to tell you Mr. Orange is not the guy you think he is. And he's just kind of re-emphasizing that by saying, oh, the rest of the music you've heard, pretty cool and upbeat. Right now, pretty sad and lonely. Well, and also maybe he's trying to maintain his calm. You know, Good he's point. now about Good to point. throw himself to the sharks, so to speak. He doesn't want to be fucking psyched up like a lunatic, does no. he? want something to keep him meditative, you know. So there's that aspect as well. Personally, I think it's uh, we're running out of money. <laughs> <laughs> 
at the time, you know, I got to say this is all stuff. This is all stuff you can read into it. But I got a feeling at the time I was like, look, we haven't really got much fucking money left. We can use this for nothing. So you can take my version. Or you think Steve's either? Well, no, it's either Tarantino no. doing a character thing, or it's like, well, no, hey, we don't have any fucking no, money. No, this is this is what's great about it is that what yes. you can read into it. Agreed. Because he could have chosen any song, couldn't he? True. That was cheap. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. True. It still works in the sense of what you're talking about. Yeah. And what, even what I'm saying to an extent of just trying to keep him chill. Yeah. You know, but so that song works whatever way you look at it. He could have had a heavy metal song playing then that was Oof. cheap as fuck too. Yeah. But he didn't. That's what I'm saying. No, he went with the country because even though they don't follow each other on the soundtrack, they follow each other in the movie. It goes from him listening to Fool for Love to Hooked on a Feeling. And we yeah. go from calm, relaxed to upbeat and here exactly. we fucking go it works anyway yeah even beautifully yeah even if it, even if it wasn't it's still the point is that's why he's listening to something at that, that tempo yeah oh agreed 100 percent. and then that brings us to track number six the song of songs the song that announced to the world tarantino is a needle dropper it may not be mr <laughs> smith's favorite song however it is in my opinion the song of the tarantino verse it is the first and maybe the will always go down as the song that is so tied to Tarantino more than any other song, and that is Stuck in the Middle with You by Steeler's Wheel. Stuck in the Middle with You was written by Scottish musicians Jerry Rafferty and Joe Egan and was released in 1972. The single sold over a million copies and reached number six on the US Billboard Hot 100 charts, number eight in the UK, and number two in Canada. It's the most iconic song of the Tarantino verse. It just is, and it plays during Mr. Blonde's Torture of the Cop. And I know my friend doesn't like it as much. He only likes it when he sees it in the movie, but when you talk about the marrying of a song to a scene, there really isn't many scenes in the Tarantino verse that you can recall that are married as well as this song and this scene. Agree. No, I agree. And as I've said on the episode, I think this was when, as a viewer myself, I was like, okay, this is when I knew. I was like, oh, I know. Whatever I'm watching now, I'm in. Like this, and you know, I've talked about also, then you go into Pulp Fiction, and you, all of a sudden the gimp comes down, you're like, you just know you're in different hands, and you're just like, here's all my money. These rides you're taking me on, they take me all over the place. My emotions are everywhere. Here's all my money. And 30 years from now, I'm going to do a podcast on you. So it's like, this yeah. was the song. However, yeah. as I think we mentioned on the main episode, originally Tarantino was considering the use of Sweet's Ballroom Blitz for this ear-cutting scene. In my opinion, I'm glad he went with Stuck With The Middle of You. Ballroom Blitz is a little quicker up-tempo song. What I love about Stuck In The Middle of You is how it slowly builds that doom, 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 no. doom. And then it goes doom, 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 and then it picks itself up. It, it leads you in, and the way Mr. Blonde dances to that slow start, and the cop's like, oh, shit, and then we pick it up, and I just, Ballroom Blitz just comes in like, dun, dun, the Ballroom Blitz. Yeah. It's just, it's too you know fast what? tempo. I will say, in this case, I'm not sure I knew that, actually. I think in this case, it's, it's a case of the lesser of two evils to me. <laughs> Look, I've got to be I know honest. right now, I, right I now, Sean Wheeler is listening to this, and his it's eyes spinning. are rolling to the back of his fucking skull. His he's currently, as like he listens fucking... to this, he is texting you wherever, and he's like, yeah, what the his, fuck's wrong with you? His head is spinning around like the fucking exorcist right now, I know. But I've got to be honest. Here's my... I will say this, not to go off too far on a tangent, but Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, and Reservoir Dogs, they're all great in the sense of when I'm watching the movie. I personally never really listened to any of them on their own. Okay, that's fair. But they all work perfect. Right, now, when we get to Kill Bill and he starts messing around with 
school music. Well, he starts talking your language because you're a huge Spaghetti Western fan. If my fans yeah, don't yeah, know that, yeah. and then and he so starts to play with Ennio, you start to get you get sucked in. That's fine. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of movies out there where a great song is playing, and that you find out later it kind of works in the film, but that's not something I'd listen to, you know, on a own. Perfectly fine. Yeah. So. I mean, I love, you know, when I'm watching Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Reservoir Dodge, I'm as intoxicated by the music as I am anything, by his dialogue and everything else. Don't get me wrong. But I don't, you know, I never really found myself listening to those soundtracks on their own with my feet up on the table and a cup of coffee. And until I got to Kill Bill, until I got to Kill Bill. Well, some of that might be because of the visual sensory that's added with these songs. You don't get that, like that visual sensory mm. overload that you get the the joy of the the way he matches the music with what you're visually watching. Like here's yeah. the thing: when I hear these songs, I can't help but think of them in the movie. I don't ever hear Steeler's Wheel and think, "Oh, it's a cute little," or you know, "it's a cute little song." I'm always thinking. Oh, I should be dancing right now with a straight razor cutting some motherfucker's ear off. Like, that doesn't matter when. It's been 30 years since that came out. And I every know. time, it's the same for me. I could, be, could be in a, I could be in a children's department store, and that song would play on speaker. I'm like, I'm going to tie someone down right now. I'm chopping someone's ear off. Or if I hear um, Humanity Without Honor, you know, from Kill Bill, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. thinking of, I should be in this cool walk-up scene right now. Like, I should be walking through a Chinese restaurant or a Japanese restaurant with a, bunch, with a whole bunch of people. We should be walking in like we're cock of the wood style, you know? He brings you that sensory overload to yeah. it that it just becomes so iconic that now the song and the visuals are married and I can't break the song from the visuals anymore. You know, right. like it was hard for me to hear Hooked on a Feeling in Guardians of the Galaxy and not think of Reservoir Dogs at first. You know, I was like, so wait a minute, that's Quentin yeah. Tarantino's song. You know that shouldn't like, be in here. That <laughs> exactly. belong here. But it did but work, it, but, but I was just like, wait a minute. Yeah. So the Steelers Wheel thing, you know, in the film, it's incredible. But I just don't like the song in any other, you know, like I say, if I, for some reason, had my Spotify on random and that came on, I'd flip faster. I just would. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not add at the podcast. I will have all my special guest information in the show notes. So please feel free to at Mr. Smith on any one of his social medias. Have a conversation any with abuse, him. Bring it on. <laughs> bring it on. I love it. But no, that's just, I can only be honest with you. That, no, I, I like appreciate I say, it. You don't need like to, you don't need say, to drop down and suck his dick. You, I, I want honesty. Exactly, if you don't like it, you don't I, like it. I, you know, but in the film, it's incredible. And that whole, I mean, I remember that scene in the, the cinema, seeing it for the first time. And you could have heard a pin drop. Everyone was just absolutely gobsmacked, you know? Well, what I love that they did about that scene is I love that a lot of films sometimes don't do this. Is he walks out if we remember yeah, after he's cut the, and he playing. goes and they keep it playing and he comes. I absolutely comes, love that. Again, when he comes in the editing, back, that's it. yep, to the right, love yeah, it. absolutely. Just a class act. That's, that's, that's what makes the scene for me. Like, it, and then when it ends, it ends. Like, yeah, no, he's a class act in that respect. Like a lot of, they, like you say, a lot of films don't do that. Yeah, they'll go to another song or they'll go, they'll kick into like orchestral yeah. music. And he did yeah. not. He said out, and we're coming back in. It's gonna be playing, and I loved it. Just and he didn't keep it going on the soundtrack. Yes, yeah, fucking yeah, loved yeah. It. No, it cuts out. But yeah. Yep. Yeah, no, that's that's that reality that he... And again, he announced himself as he's going to be a master of this. He, that, in that moment, he announced, like, I know you like some of this stuff, but this, I'm going to do this a lot. Hold on to your asses, folks. I'm going to do this throughout my career. But what I like about that, that attention to detail, to the minutiae, is he didn't know anyone was even going to see the movie. Agreed. He didn't know who he was going to become. 
or, agreed or who we already that people were going to appreciate who we already was however we want to put it yeah agreed but that didn't deter him no he was confident in his abilities he was like if i was going to watch this movie this is what i would want to see in it a lot of people would have probably thought look this movie's cost what a fucking 900 grand no one's going to watch it i'm not going to break my balls over this movie no one will care about that shit but to him that was just as important as everything else agreed and that's what separated him from the pack you know yeah and he did it in his first film that's that minutia that that detail i always knew that you know about that song that yeah it's clever how he kept that playing and then when you come back in, that's where it should have been playing from. Yes. And and, yes. and you were also, you know, you also knew in your head that, that people don't normally do that. What they'll do is they'll keep the music playing, which takes you a little bit out of the moment because now it's just a part of the soundtrack. And now you're part of like yeah, a... Yeah, yeah. So it's playing, but they're in a, it hasn't faded down because, or a door hasn't... You didn't hear a door close. All, yep. all these little things. So, yeah. Like I say, I love it in the movie. It's just something about the song I just doesn't... It's all right. I'm sure Mr. Wheeler is typing like mad to you right now as we speak. I'm I know he's incredibly sensitive, but I'm sure he can deal. I'm sure he can deal with it. Our seventh song on this soundtrack is another song by Bedlam, who was actually paid to create this song. This is the only song made for the film, and it's Harvest Moon. Oh, I never knew that. Where is it? It is playing while Mr. Orange and his handler are meeting in the restaurant. When he comes in and goes, ah. guess who's the motherfucker who's in bed with Joe Cabot kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And then they're talking. Again, another well-placed song that is just being used in the background of a diner. We don't need it to be some bombastic, recognizable song. So good for Bedlam. They got two songs in there. Yeah, and it's not, dis- like you said, it doesn't distract you from... No, yeah. And again, that's that's the genius of all great part. filmmakers. It's, yes. Yeah, it serves as purpose. Yeah, because some films would have had no music, but that doesn't make sense. When you're in a diner, there's going to be some kind of over-speaker music. It's not going to be anything too obnoxious, but at the same time, you're going to have something. You don't want orchestral music or anything like that. You don't need any score. This this isn't a giant moment. Some people would have overscored it. They would have tried to turn it into a Hitchcock moment. Like the, ooh, ah. He's just saying, I got the job. We're building his story from here. We don't need anything over the top. We grow to over the top as we get through him. It's one of those songs that if you don't know it's there, you don't know it's there. And a lot of times, I'll be honest, I skip it, not because I don't have appreciation for Bedlam, it's because it's a song I don't recognize because it's that far hidden in the background that you're sometimes like, I don't remember this fucking song. Just like you didn't either. You just go past it. Do you know what? Um, When I was doing the uh, required research for this episode, (laughs) and I, I was looking at the track list, and I was looking at that one like, I, I can't remember that. Bear in mind how many times I've watched Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Like I said, I don't listen to the soundtrack for it that much. So maybe I've just, over the years, forgotten about it. But I, was just like, I can't even remember when that played. But yeah, like you say, it's one of them songs that serves a specific purpose of just yes. setting a kind of... A mood. You know, yeah. like a, something mm-hmm. playing in the background. Yeah. You don't need to know what it is. No, it's like elevator music, you know? You just sit there that, and have the yeah, time you don't know it, what that's it is. That's it, yeah. yeah. That's exactly what it is, yeah. That brings us to the eighth and final music track on this soundtrack. And God damn it if I don't love this fucking song. Mr. Harry Nilsson's Coconut. This novelty song from Harry Nilsson was the third single from his 1971 album, Nilsson Schmilson. It was on the U.S. Billboard charts for 14 weeks and peaked at number eight. And in Canada, it reached number two. Interestingly enough, there are no chord changes in the song. And arpeggiated C7 accompanies it. Again, never heard this song before. Never. But God 
damn, do I fucking love it. And what an interesting way to end a movie after we've just had the unbelievable finale climax that we've had. We've had everyone shot and killed. We don't know what's happened to Mr. Pink right off the bat. Everything has gone tits up. And the next thing we do is we got this nice little slow building song about, hey, call the doctor, put a lime in a coconut, and you'll feel better in the fucking morning. I don't know why, but it's just one of those perfect like send-off songs. It's just so great. Right, now this is where... To every dickhead podcaster out there who, you know, criticizes Tarantino. Is this the time you call that podcast out or are we waiting? Uh, Maybe later, (laughs) maybe later. But man, this guy's a fucking jerk off. But anyway, hundreds of directors have tried to imitate this. That's so obvious when they play that ironic song, you know, because when Tarantino did that with the coconut song in Reservoir Dogs, like you say, we've just had a bloodbath, people screaming you know, confusion, and then he ends it with this little head nod and little pop oddity at the end. But we've all seen it a million times with Tarantino imitators putting an ironic song in place, and it never fucking works. And this is my thing. If it's just that easy, if I'm so easy, like I've said before, if I'm so easy to just rehash ideas from how come no one's been able to successfully rip off tarantino and i will say it to anyone who wants to say all he all he does is rip off other movies it's not that easy is it well that's what season two is all about is highlighting if he does or doesn't and obviously we're only one in and so far he doesn't but again it's because people like that don't take the time to actually watch his films or go look at the films that people are saying they're referencing. So they'll just hear word of mouth and go, well, then yeah. he stole it. But did yeah. he steal it? Every film you could go through of all the greats and see where they're referencing and who they're referencing and what they've seen before. And like we talked about, just like his songs, most of his references are on songs that only he, on show, or I'm sorry, on movies that only he knows for the most part. Now people know him because he brought them to the main you know, stream. Mm-hmm. And he's not trying to hide them either. As I said, he takes the ingredients and he just makes a better meal out of them. That's just my opinion. And until I've proven otherwise, I'm going to stand by that. Do you know what? Back in the day, when we used to actually physically read magazines... Love those days. There were tons of interviews, especially in British movie magazines. Which I would like to give credit that you probably have the best movie magazines. We had, we would, did have some You really very do. Good, I'm going to be oh, 100% with Empire and them. They're, you have some of the best. Oh, Empire, Total Film. There was one called Neon. There was, there was quite a few back in the day. And what I was going to say was, around the time of Kill Bill, I believe, Tarantino literally listed off these films that he was referencing and influenced by. You know, everyone's saying, oh, when's he going to give credit to the films he's stolen from? He's been doing that for fucking years. If all you can do is go on YouTube for your information, then you may very well level that claim at him. But that just goes to show that you're out of your depth, <laughs> you know, and your opinion is therefore just based on inaccuracy. But I can remember physically holding the magazine in my hand when he was talking about Kill Bill. And he listed off Real or a Cruel Picture, Death Rides the Horse, Shogun Assassin, all this stuff. So he's not hiding this stuff, no. you know? And not only that, did he not also make these films famous? Because most of the people who claim this shit didn't even know what these films were without him breathing life back into them. And equally with the music, yeah. So exactly. like I say, yeah. Yeah, so like I say, talking about the coconut song, you know, people weren't doing that shit then where you heard some poppy, quirky, gimmicky pop song after people have had their fucking brains blown out. That wasn't the done thing then, you know? And then everyone who did it afterwards just couldn't pull it off. Facts. Facts, as the kids would say. No cap. (laughs) But I 
thoroughly love this. And I don't know if it's my favorite ending song, because I'm trying to think of some, but goddamn if it's not good. Like, he sends you out of the theater after this unbelievable climax with, like, this giddy feeling. Almost as if he's like, yeah, hey, I hope you enjoyed the ride. Please come back for the next one. And you're just kind of like, damn, that really was kind of a... That was fun. Well, in, in the UK, that kept, that kept us up going back to the cinema for over oh, a I year. Know. But like I know. you say, yeah, that, that giddy feeling when you left the cinema, and it was just sort of like... Like I say, because I've often I often say this about Reservoir Dogs, like the pace of the film and the length of the film and everything that happens in all that in that short span of time, all that music, all that dialogue, colourful characters, this colourful music, you know, it was just intoxicating, yes, from top to bottom, yes, you know, and uh, so you know these songs that you've mentioned was like, um, yeah, you know, little green bag stuck in the middle, coconut, all these fantastic songs, and then. To jump the gun slightly, then you brought the soundtrack and you had the dialogue. I was about to talk about that, yes. I know, that's why I'm, yes. you know, that's why I was a little <laughs> he slightly this. hesitant, but I, I always do this, I'm sorry. But yes, there are other tracks. There are a couple of excerpts. So, there are the K-Billy excerpts, and there are six of them. They are narrated by the amazing American comedian Stephen Wright, who is just a fucking gem. Well, I loved Stephen Wright before I'd seen Reservoir Dogs, so that was a buzz for me, personally. Like, oh, shit, I know something, you know? So his K-Billy excerpts are And Now a Little Green Bag, Rock Flock of Five. Those two were not in the film. Those were recorded for the soundtrack or didn't make the film. Behemoth does love that. Obviously, the super sounds of the 70s, Keep on Trucking, and Home of Rock all make the soundtrack. And there are two dialogue moments, which I'll be honest with you, up until before this, I could not recall another soundtrack that actually added dialogue from the movie. We got the Madonna speech and Let's Get a Taco. Now, obviously, you could have put more in, but those are two really good moments that he put in there. And he would go on to do it, obviously, in Pulp Fiction and others, which we'll get into when we get to there in a couple months. But those are all the extra tracks. So you have eight songs, you have six K-Billy excerpts, and two dialogue moments in it. So you get 16 total tracks on the soundtrack. He put this out, launched a lot of great songs that people hadn't heard or didn't remember, and then had some really cool extras on it that most soundtracks don't have. And this was the CD era, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah. So, I mean, I remember having the CD. Yeah, the only other soundtrack I can think of that had movie dialogue was um, the soundtrack to John Landis' Animal House. Again, a few moments, but... Yeah, this was something, on top of it already just being awesome music that's quite obscure and cool, when you get the dialogue as well, it's pretty immersive when you listen to his soundtracks over some others. You know, you get the kind of dialogue and the, and also where he puts his songs, like you say, like Stuck in the Middle. There's no way you can hear Stuck in the Middle like you said before. You just yeah. immediately... Immediately go to the image. Yeah, yeah of, a, of, a, of a poor, honest cop. <laughs> Having his ear sliced off by yep. someone who's wallowing in the absolute glee and yes. sadism of it. <laughs> and that's, you know, uh, just such an unbelievable um, scene, you know, classic. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. All right, my friend, we're going to wrap it up with some end questions. What is your favorite track on this inaugural soundtrack for our inaugural episode? It's got to be Little Green Bag because it's just such a cool song ultimately. yes i agree and again you know when we talked about other people trying to riff on what tarantino does you know playing a quirky poppy song over you know a bunch of 
pretty nasty pieces of work. You know, that slow motion walk with cool music playing has been done a million times and no one has done it as good as him. No, no, of course. They're all riffing on what he's done, yeah. So for me, the best track is the George Baker Selections Little Green Bag. What is your least favorite track on this soundtrack? That will be the Fool for Love or the other Bedlam track. It's a tie. Oh, okay. The Harvest Moon or the Fool well, for Love? Well, because they just, they're just, to me, there's nothing memorable. And I'm sure they're perfectly fine songs in their own right. <laughs> but to me, I wouldn't listen to those songs. Very, very fair. I'm being as diplomatic <laughs> as I can there. What is the most underrated track on this soundtrack, in your opinion? In my opinion, that would be the Joe Tex track. If I had to answer the questions, that would be mine too. Yeah, I gotcha. And I just love the way that they're fucking... The way they're kicking the... Sorry. I'm sorry, yeah. man. No. But the way, they're, yeah. the way they're kicking the shit out of that cop. <laughs> I think there's just... Oh, this just goes to show what a sick bastard I am. I'm sure there's a bit where uh, Mr. White, Harvey Keitel, tells Cap, he's laying on the... He's just like lean over him and just kick him in the stomach. Like, <laughs> and I think uh, Mr... Pink punches him in the face. And hurts his hand, I think, or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure, like, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a moment, I don't know, where Mr. White just kicks him and that's just like this poor fucking guy. <laughs> and also, at the time, obviously you don't know this at the time, but he isn't the worst of it yet. No. That's bad enough as it is yeah. that there's all these guys standing around him fucking using him as a punch bag. And you're thinking, oh man. But yeah, next minute he's tied to a chair, doused in gasoline, <laughs> getting fucking ear cut off. Oh, dear uh, me. So yeah, the Joe Tex is the most underrated to me. Agreed. Now, final question. Where does this soundtrack rank in all of your soundtracks from the Tarantinoverse? Ooh, I would have to say it's on the lower end. Oh, it's difficult. So do I have to go through all nine? I mean, you have to give me a full number. Where would you put it? Yeah, it would be... I get your hesitation. It's strong yeah. tracks are strong. It's weak tracks are weak. And I could say the same thing about Jackie Brown. I think Pulp Fiction's up there with the what some you know mm -hmm. that's got to be one of his best. But again, you know, we, when you talk about like Hateful Eight, that's a different ball game mm -hmm. because that is a score. Yep. It's got a couple of needle drops in there. Yep. But ultimately, it is a score. Yep. Um, I would put oh. Damn, this is difficult. Yeah, it would, it, all I can really say is, for me, oh, yeah. You know, it would have to be, I mean, right, firstly, the Kill Bill soundtracks are way up there and may be my favourite. So, you know, just by process of elimination, it would just, <laughs> I think, for me, Reservoir Dogs and Jackie Brown would be above Inglorious, okay. and that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> you'd have to just, you know, you'll have to decipher, you know, because, I mean, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is amazing. Hateful Eight, you know, I'm, I, I'm a huge mm -hmm. Western fan. I'm a huge Ennio Morricone fan. So that's got to be up there with Kill Bill. Like, if there's early stuff, Pulp Fiction would be way up there. But I think Re Reservoir Dogs, that's my favourite of his movies. The soundtrack is great in the film. That's not something I'd listen to on a own. Fair. So for that reason, it's going to be lower down. It's going to be on the lower end. And that's all I'm going to say, because we'll be here all fucking night <laughs> until I completely change my mind, because that has been known to happen. Like we've said, you know, from the beginning that we've grown with Tarantino, whereas, you know, with Scorsese, De Palma, Coppola, all these other directors, you know, they're potentially peaked by the time we were well into movies. Yeah. Whereas with Tarantino, we grew with him and yeah. see how he's evolved has been fascinating as fascinating as the movies himself yeah and what a way to start with a reservoir dogs 
And that's a wrap on our very first hymnal devotional. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Steve Smith, host of the Way Past Cool podcast, and my Cheeky Bastard podcast co-host for helping me kick off our newest endeavor of season two. Now you can find the links to all of Steve's podcasts and the show's socials in the show's notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. So join me again in two weeks as the duo from the Asian Cinema Film Club, Elwood Jones and Stephen Palmer. Join me as we take a look at two of the films featured in the Tarantino pen film True Romance, those being The Street Fighter and A Better Tomorrow too. Now, if you would be so kind and take a moment to like, review, subscribe, and follow us, the church would greatly appreciate it. So until next time, this has been the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. Motherfucker. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.